0: Hello, and welcome to RD and the In-Betweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of RD and the In-Betweens. This episode marks the first in a new series on decolonising research, so this is off the back of a decolonising research festival I organised at the University of Exeter in June and July 2022. We recorded all of the talks as part of the festival and are turning all of those talks into podcast episodes so that whether you were able to attend the festival or not, you can still benefit from the rich and vibrant knowledge that was shared. So without further ado, here's our first recording. The first talk from the festival was called Decolonising the Curriculum, Experiences from South Africa, and it's a talk by Dr Chrissy Bowie from Rhodes University.
1: Okay, everybody, um, we've now got, what, 18 people in the room, that's including me and um, some of the organisers, but I think I'm going to get going anyway. Um, as I've already said, my name's Chrissy Bowie, and I'm joining you from. Um, I'm, I'm actually now in Stellenbosch in, in the mountains outside Cape Town, where it is very, very cold, unlike England, where I understand you're having a heat wave or you were having a heat wave. Um, I'm an emeritus professor of Rhodes University, and I worked at Rhodes University for many years. Um, And um, my field is higher education studies. So I've done a lot of research and supervision in higher education studies. But I also had the the dubious honor of being um, deputy vice chancellor at the end of my career at Rhodes University. And I was DVC, um, academic. So I was in charge of all matters related to teaching and learning. Um, It it was a time when South Africa was rocked by student protests, but I'll speak about those in in the course of my presentation. Um, Please could I ask you to keep your cameras off, just for the bandwidth. I'll switch mine off in a moment. I'm going to use a PowerPoint. Um, I will be very happy to take questions at the end. If there's a burning point, stick your hands up. Uh, And I'll also try to monitor the chat. Um, I hope I don't get too caught up in my own presentation. To do that, I'll try to monitor the chat and address anything as it it goes along. One last point from me, and that is um, South Africa has waves of load shedding. And we just started a new load shedding um, run at the moment. And it's quite, well, my area is scheduled for load shedding in an hour. So I'm quite likely to just disappear at one o'clock. So don't think I'm being rude. It's because the power's gone and and the internet goes and it takes a while for the generators to kick in. So please, I'm sorry if if I have an abrupt departure, but I'll always be very happy to speak to anybody on the email if you want to. and I'll I'll put my email address, um c.bowie at R. U. A. C. Z. A. if you need to afterwards. So let, let's get going. I'm going to share my screen. Um, and and I have a presentation. Okay. So what you can see on the screen is um picture of Rhodes University, which is in the Eastern Cape in South Africa. And you've only got to look at it to see um, how in appearance, how, how colonial it is. Um, Rhodes University. So some of Cecil John's uh, uh, Rhodes' money was involved in getting it going. And it still bears the name Rhodes, which obviously is hugely problematic. I won't speak to the name changing stories, but needless to say, they they are ongoing. Um, So it's a a, a historically white university. It is um, research intensive. So one of the small group of, of universities that produces the bulk of research in South Africa. It, it's um, also one of the smallest universities in South Africa. And as I said, it's located in the Eastern Cape, which is one of the poorest provinces in the country. So that's a little bit of background to um, where, where I worked. I was there for 22 years, but I, I also worked at the University of Zululand, And the reason I, I originally came to South Africa I'm British by birth, was that I came on an aid project in the 1980s to the University of the Western Cape, which at that time was at the forefront of the struggle against apartheid. And I found it impossible to leave, just for all sorts of reasons, but mostly because I became hooked with the idea that I wanted to try to make a contribution in this country at a time of great social change. So what you can now see on on the screen is a a picture taken at Rhodes University from the student protests. And we we had waves of student protests in 2015, 16 and 17. And and the protests were under a number of banners. So roads must fall. And you might be familiar with that because of um, obviously there's, Oriel College in Oxford, but also in South Africa at the University of Cape Town, there were protests about the um, statue, the the Cecil John Rhodes statue on the campus, which was eventually removed. Um, But there were also, um, went into the banner of Fees Must Fall, and then finally um, the so-called reference list, but I'll explain those. So what were the roots of the protests? Well, basically uh, a lot of it was about the inability of poor black students to pay tuition fees. As in other countries across the world, tuition free fees have risen steadily in South Africa. And as those fees have, have, have risen, more and more black students have managed to gain access to the higher education system. We are now, rightly, Um, a a system where the majority of students are black, Um, but the, the participation rate of 18 to 22 year olds still doesn't reflect the proportion of black people in the country. So basically what that means is that if you're white, you're more likely to get to a university than if you're black and particularly if you're poor and black. The rising fees um, problem was exacerbated by a lack of access to bursaries and loans. So there is um, now, thanks to the protests, a much more established um, bursary system, some of it which is a loan system, but if a student passes, basically a loan is converted to a bursary. But for for black working class students in particular, particular, there was an inability to access loans from commercial banks. There's literally no collateral in families. So their families weren't able to access a loan to allow them to study. So there's this huge burden of fees. And at the same time, we've got data and and that data shows a really persistent pattern and we haven't managed to shift it. And and you'll find that in the Council on Higher Education Vital Stats Series, that's um, an analysis of performance in higher education produced year on year. And what that shows is that regardless of the universities at which they're registered, regardless of the field of study, and regardless of the level of the qualification, Black students don't do as well as white students. Now, many people, including myself, um, for many years have argued that um, it's the system that's problematic in South Africa. It's the higher education system. Um, Historically, uh, black students were understood as carrying problems inherited from their poor schooling with them into the universities. But from way back in the mid-1980s, and this was an idea that captured me, um, it it, it was argued that the students aren't the problem, the system is the problem. It's the universities that have to change. And that idea of transformation, of change, was certainly picked up as South Africa moved into democracy. And you see it over and over again in policy documents. But we're still seeking transformation. We're not a transformed system in so many ways. But of course, the the other reason um, for the protests was um, decolonial theory. And I've cited Mahmoud Mamdani there. And and Mamdani is actually in 1998, gave a lecture at the University of Cape Town. Um, He's a Ugandan scholar and he was very, very critical of the curriculum at the University of Cape Town. But of course, Mamdani is just one scholar. There are many, many other scholars um, who um, write about theorize decoloniality, many um, from um, uh, the um, American, Southern Americas, Um, but I've cited Mamdani there. it, the, the, the protest came out of a whole um, a whole lot of, of, of things but basically it was about black students being treated unfairly in the universities and one of the things that, that you, you saw on the placards in the protests was statements like you don't see us. We don't see black students so you know, people are teaching, but they're teaching to a class and they're not seeing um, that the majority of their students now are different to the students they sat beside when they were students years ago. And another thing that was quite common on on placards in the protest was statements like, you can say Kherit, but not Khadebe. So Kherit is an Afrikaans name. Kredebi is a name in the um, Nguni languages. So, you know, w- w- the claim there was, well, okay, you you white lecturers, you, you can use an Afrikaans name correctly, but you can't say my name. So that, that was the sort of thing that we saw in the protests. So I'm going to talk about the curriculum and I, I'm going to begin with the assumption that the curriculum is not neutral It's a structure that distributes access to knowledge. um, And and with that, access to the goods of the world um, and and to power in all sorts of ways. I've kept the the idea of knowledge vague there, but basically I would see the curriculum as um, a structure that's implicated in, in power, Uh, through distributing access to knowledge. After the protests, um, most universities began some sort of curriculum review or renewal projects. And Jonathan Jansen, who's um, a very well-known South African scholar, he has a book and there's a list of references at the end of this um, presentation. And and he, um, he did some research on what the universities were doing um, in order to start this process of, of curriculum review. I don't think it's got very far. I, I think most of those projects are floundering. If not, have actually floundered. Um, I won't go into the reasons for that, but I don't think it's been hugely successful. But what I want to do, and and this is my own thinking, is is draw on a sort of um, continuum of of thinking about approaches to decolonizing the curriculum. And this comes from my own experience and and of of being um, in South African higher education, reading the literature, going to conferences and things like that. And I, I've ranged them along a continuum from what I've called weaker approaches to stronger approaches. Um and and any any if, if you look at Jonathan Johnson's book, I think what you could do is is look at the work that's reported in the book, mm. and you could start to place them on this continuum. Okay, so um Let's begin. But I want to begin with the work of Bernstein, um, British sociologist, Basil Bernstein, who I think is is really useful in in thinking about the curriculum um, and not only in relation to decolonization. And and what Bernstein does is he identifies, he calls them two discourses, um, two knowledge forms, if you like, and he, he, the first is horizontal discourse, which is everyday common sense knowledge, closely tied to the context in which it arises. Um, and it often exists only in spoken language. And you, you encounter that all over the place outside the university. So if I give you an example of horizontal discourse, South Africa is a big country and it it contains several weather systems because different oceans, different ocean temperatures on either side of the country. So if you live on the eastern side of the country in KwaZulu-Natal, then you might make a statement which says... um, In Krasunan it or it it rains in the summer. And that is true for the eastern part of the country. Um, In the eastern part rain falls in the summer months. And it's because of water vapor clouds coming in off the Indian Ocean. That's not true for the western part of the country in the Western Cape, where I'm located, it rains in the winter. The summer is the dry, dry season. So that statement, it always rains in the summer, is tied to the context of um, somebody's experiences in the eastern part of the country. Um, So very, very closely linked to a particular context. It's true but it's true of a particular context. Vertical discourse, on the other hand, is theorized, abstract, systematized knowledge that can cross contexts. Now, if I go back to my RAIN example, an example of vertical discourse would be the explanation of the weather system that is often given in schools to quite young children. And I'm sure you all know about that, you know, the sun shines on the ocean, the the water evaporates, it forms clouds, the clouds move over the land, the, the, the rain falls over the land, and it runs back into the ocean through rivers. So obviously that's a very simplified version of an explanation of weather, but it's been systematized. The knowledge has been systematized. It's abstract. You can't see the water vapor rising off the ocean. And and there's a whole theory in it about heat and goodness knows what else to explain weather systems. Now that knowledge will will explain rainfall, if I keep in South Africa, um, in the Eastern part of the country and in the Western part of the country, which have very different weather systems. So of course, vertical discourse this theorized, abstract, systematized knowledge that can cross contexts. Um, It's the stuff of schools. We're introduced to it as children in schools. It exists in written forms, mostly one would argue in written forms. And and what it does essentially is it acts as a lens that allows the world to be seen differently. it's like a theory, you put the theory on like a pair of spectacles, and then you, you can see the world differently. You can understand the world differently. And importantly, it will also allow us to predict. Um, and, and of course, this theorized, abstract, systematized knowledge allows us to make hypotheses, which, which then can be tested. Um, and scientists do that all the time. So you, you can predict a world, if you like, that doesn't yet exist. And, and because of all these features, vertical discourse is often um, cited by the likes of Lisa Wheelahan and, and other scholars who draw on Bernstein as powerful knowledge. It's powerful because of its, its power to explain and to predict, whereas horizontal discourse is stuck to local contexts. So two kinds of knowledge identified by Bernstein. Okay, now let's get back to approaches to decolonizing the curriculum. And um, one of of the most um, early approaches um, was to introduce examples and texts into curricula. African examples and African authors, African texts, bring those into the curriculum. So um, many of the textbooks that are used in the universities are in fact imported from the global north. Um, And when you look at those textbooks, they'll have examples from the global north. But The theories that the textbooks teach, they're also mostly generated in the Global North. They're they're not theories that were produced in the Global South, in in Africa. So so any textbook is likely to to contain these examples and theories from from the Global North. Um, There are, are South African textbooks, written by South African academics, particularly in higher education. And and they also um, may well draw on examples from the global north, and and they will draw on theory from the global north. And the other thing, of course, is that literature is overwhelmingly generated in the global north. Africa produces less than 1% of the world's research. Um, and And one one of the um, problems is that researchers from the global North often come south and and they literally mine the continent for data, and they publish on Africa. Um, that they're not of Africa. They're not African, um, but but they they find um, Africa a really interesting place. and and they'll come and do research here. And and one of my colleagues in in higher education studies once told me that he loved doing research in South Africa because the problems were so raw here. But that that research obviously was being um, undertaken from a a theoretical view, series produced in in the Global North by a British researcher, and it was mostly published in British journals and books, books, British publishers. Um, And even when you get work done by African researchers, it it tends to draw on dominant theories generated in the the global North. So, you know, fine, you, you can cite African authors, but the thinking, they are using thinking, they are using theory, And and to go back to my Bernstein slide, they're using the the knowledge, the theoretical, abstract, systematized knowledge that's been generated in the Global North um, to do their research in Africa and they might be publishing in Africa. So this was an approach to the um, decolonization of the curriculum that emerged very quickly following the protests. Um, I'd say that was a weak approach towards the left-handed end of that continuum I've shown you, I've shown you, and I I hope that as I continue, you'll you'll start to see why and how um, it differs from what I'll call stronger approaches. Okay, so another, um, so, so sorry, what does it do? What does that approach achieve? Well, of course it does affirm Africans, African scholars as researchers and knowledge makers. I think it does, but then does it if they're, they're using theory from the global North? I put a question mark there because of that. Does it provide access to knowledge through local examples? Many would argue, argue that if you if you put an example in from Africa, um, students are probably better able to understand. Um, You'd have to have more evidence to support that claim. I think I'm not aware of research that's been been done that will affirm that claim, but potentially using African examples, drawing on African um, research would have the potential to affirm and possibly provide greater access. But another approach, and this sort of leads on to providing access to to knowledge, to Western knowledge, is is the use of indigenous knowledges as a kind of stepping stone. And I've got an example here. So um, amasi, and it's a type of fermented milk, a bit like drinking yoghurt, is widely consumed in South Africa. And, and nowadays you can buy it in supermarkets, but of course historically it was made at home. And um, when when a masi has been made and consumed, you, you need to clean the bowl um, before you put more milk in to make more amasi, because obviously you need the right kind of bacteria to start the fermentation process so uh, an indigenous practice is to use a particular kind of leaf an indigenous plant um, to sterilize the bowl and and I've actually seen um uh, someone doing this someone demonstrating it and and the leaf had a, a sort of silvery sheen on the back and and you could see as as the bowl was cleaned with the leaf, some of the silvery sheen going off onto the inner surface of the bowl. And um, Western science explains that as um, the the leaf having antibiotic properties. So, So the leaf has the potential to kill the bacteria that remain in the bowl, the wrong kind of bacteria. And then you can put the milk in and the milk will ferment as you want it to. So with that sort of example, what's happening is that Western science is taking over an indigenous knowledge in the form of a practice. So, okay, the knowledge is, if if I clean my bowl with this particular leaf, then I will be able to produce good amasi um, if if I do that, that's the knowledge, and I clean my bowl, therefore, as a result of practice, it emerges from the knowledge. What, what Western science does is it takes over the knowledge and practice, and it explains it in its own terms. It explains it in terms of the leaf having antibiotic properties. And, and there's a lot of this. Um some of you might remember um, the the there was a lot in the newspapers about it, about a plant hoodia, um, which is used by the Sun um, to stave off hunger. And um, Western pharmaceutical companies w- were found out the identified the compounds in the Hoodia plant um, and were using it to produce what diet medication. A medication too that would help people lose weight. So the science, the Western science, takes over indigenous knowledge and practice, and it explains it in terms of Western science. And I've got another example of that here, and that this was a book published last year, um, big project, Timis um, et al. And and what they were looking at was um, rural students, um, students really from quite remote parts of the country and and their experiences as they came into institutions of higher education in South Africa. But the the approach that they drew on um, was very much using indigenous knowledge as a stepping stone to understanding dominant Western knowledge, the the knowledge of the universities. And another person who does this is Madondo, Nati Madondo. And he he was actually involved in the project, though he doesn't appear as an author of the book. And and he has an article on it. Um, I know Nati Madondo, he he was teaching in, a particular kind of program aimed at giving more access to students from poor black working class backgrounds in, in at Rhodes University. But what I've done here is, is I've cited from his, his data, and it's in this article here, and so this is one of his the students he interviewed. And so the student says, there is a similarity between indigenous knowledge, like our grandparents knowing how to diagnose cows when they're sick from grazing. We went to a dam, so he's talking about his class now. We went to a dam, we went there. They know back home, and he's talking about the village. They know back home how to detect climate changes that are affecting water, where you were not sure when you were growing up, you were not sure whether it's true or not. But when you experience it at university, you're like, oh, I've actually heard about this. So what what Madondo uses that quotation from the student to illustrate is um, his approach to teaching, which was to get students to activate indigenous knowledge um, that they might've been introduced to and grown up with from being very small and and to use it as a basis on which to begin understanding the um the knowledge in the bachelor of science degree for which they were studying and and of course you can see how in in this quotation it's affirming yeah it, i'd accept that as as some evidence of students being affirmed by by the use of indigenous um, knowledge. So you can use it as a stepping stone. And, and i I'd put that approach as moving towards the stronger end of the curriculum that um, I'm talking about. Okay. Um, I, w- I want to move on now um, to what i'd consider the strongest approaches and a challenge a real challenge and i'm very conscious as i'm talking now that i'm a white woman i'm an aging academic schooled in uh, western knowledge yeah i'm conscious of that but let me begin with um a story if you like. I used to work up in uh, Zululand in, in northern kwazulu Natal, in the eastern part of the country. I was at the University of Zululand. And I was told by a researcher there, a botanist, who'd written a Zulu herbary So he, she had um, categorized, classified, the plants used by traditional healers in their healing practices. And Anne Hutchings told me that traditional healers in the region treated high blood pressure, which they called the high high, very successfully using herbs so that they had a remedy for high blood pressure, what we know as high blood pressure. Interestingly, the the healers were also drawing on Western knowledge when they named it the high high. What what. Hutchings told me was that the compounds in the herbs, and remember she was a botanist, are the same as those incorporated into Global North manufactured medication. So if you go to a Western trained medical practitioner and and you get medication for high blood pressure, that medication will contain the same compounds that the traditional healers were using in, in the herbs. But, and this is the important point, the traditional healers didn't recognize the heart as a pump. Now, I, I, I know high blood pressure is about the heart. It, it's about something that the heart not pumping the blood as it should do that. But in Western science, high blood pressure is, is understood as emanating from a problem with the heart and its function as a pump in the body. The the traditional healers in that part of the country didn't recognize the heart as a pump. And I remember Anne telling me that she'd been at ceremonies where a beast had been slain. And as the beast was cut up to be consumed, she'd asked, what does this do? pointing to the heart, and a completely different explanation was provided by the healers. So, what I think you can see here is that another theory of being, another theory of physiology, underpins the practice of the traditional healers. They could treat what we know as high blood pressure, and what they call the high high, very effectively. But the theory underpinning their treatment was different. But what is the theory? That's what we need. What is the theory? because because that is a theory that is of the South. It is of Africa. But, yeah, Anne He-Chings was um a. a a white woman, a botanist, but she she'd worked in Zululand for many years, spoke fluent Zulu, worked with with um, traditional healers over a long t- time, and had um, enjoyed a high level of trust with them. But um, she she herself hadn't actually been able to explicate the theory. She was more interested in in producing this classification of herbs. But I would argue that that theory and other theories of a similar kind, not only for physiology, for a theory of being, but but for the world, other theories need to be identified and explicated. Um, So to go back to Bernstein, indigenous knowledge currently exists mainly as practice and is communicated as horizontal discourse that is it's very closely tied to the context now um, my domestic worker in um, i used to live in the the eastern cape when i was at roach university my domestic worker was called to become a traditional healer and, and her training as, as a traditional healer was a, a kind of apprenticeship. So, so she was apprenticed to a Sangoma, to a traditional healer over a period of many years. And she needed to um, go off and, and she would spend days in the bush with, with her, her, her mentor, with the master, if you like, the knower, the, the we'd spend days in, in, in the bush and she'd learn. The practice um, of, of healing from, from this expert. Um, my domestic worker could read and write, but I, I'm sure that none of the knowledge that she gained as a result of this apprenticeship to a traditional healer was written. It was all communicated um, orally. So w- w- Indigenous knowledge exists, it exists as practice, it's communicated as horizontal discourse, and and it will be closely tied to context. So if I look at um, the the knowledge that my domestic worker um, developed through her training as a Sangoma, it would have been in relation to the plants that grew in the Eastern Cape. I'm not a botanist, but many of those plants would be different to to the plants in other parts of the country, but closely tied to the context in which she developed the knowledge. So what I would argue, along with others, and and who am I to argue? Remember, I'm the the white woman, trained in in Northern Western um, scientific methods, as it were, um but, but people like um Siseko Kamalo, and I, I've got a reference to his book, and if you're interested, I'd really um, advise you to look at Kamalo's work. very young scholar, but wow, his his work is mind blowing. Um, and mitova um, Mitova has a a chapter in Kamalo's book. W- what they argue is that The the, the theorizing and and the abstraction, uh, making abstract, the systematization of indigenous knowledge, and and you can say the verticalization, if you're drawing on on Bernstein, Bernstein, that's what needs to happen. We need African theory. We need African theory, which will travel across contexts. And we need to bring that theory into the university. So um, Kamalo and Matova argue that that's the task for African scholars for at least the next decade, at least the next decade. So it, it's not something that we're going to be able to do immediately. It's a huge task, and and you can only I I can't begin um, to say in, in any you know sort of rigorous way, who am I, about how you could proceed. You'd have to go, um, it would have to be ethnographic research, I think. You'd have to go and, and engage with, with the healers, as my colleague Anne Hutchings did at Zululand. You'd have to go and engage there, or you'd have to go and engage with farmers and, and so on. Um, and explore through careful questioning, and so on and so on, to try to verticalize this theory. So what I'm arguing is that a stronger, and I would say, a more valid approach to the decolonization of the curriculum would involve drawing on indigenous knowledge that has been verticalized, systematized, systematized, theorized, and abstracted. It will be a completely different kind of knowledge to the Western knowledge, except it will will share these features of being able to explain the world across multiple contexts. It will be able to explain the world um, in the future, predict worlds that we don't yet know, but it will do it from a perspective in African knowing. Um, But as I've indicated, uh, Kamalo argues, a task for at least the next decade. Um, We're not there yet by any means. so i'll come to to conclude what i'm saying but i've got a few more thoughts um and this these thoughts relate to work that i've been doing recently and to a publication that i've been working on and which is currently under review so of course curriculum isn't only the what of content curriculum is a whole lot of things it's who's being taught who's teaching And it's also the how of pedagogy, the how of teaching and learning. So what I've done so far is very much focus on the what of curriculum because curricula in South African universities were imported, the the model of the, even though African universities have existed on African soil for centuries, some of the oldest universities in, in the world were in Africa, but the so-called modern university, it was an import um, thanks to colonialization. And, and as the, the modern universities supposedly were established, so curriculum also came from the North. And, and with that import of, of the what, the theories and so on, you all also got the pedagogy you know, the idea that you've got a lecturer standing in front of a class and lecturing, the tutorial system, the so-called Oxbridge system of tutorials, Rhodes University drew on that extensively. So the the curriculum also includes imported pedagogy and because of my own background, I'm interested in pedagogy and I'm interested in what Pedagogy does to students. Okay, so here are some ideas. And again, who am I to do this? But some ideas that I think could be pursued in thinking about pedagogy, in about decolonizing pedagogy. So it, there's a lot of work which looks at the roots of the so-called independent, autonomous, rational thinker in the Enlightenment of 16th and 17th century Europe. Um, and, and that idea that, you know, ideally students should be independent, autonomous, rational, applying their logic, that dominates teaching and learning in in higher education. Um, I, if I think back, there's this work that's very popular, less popular now, but it, it certainly was 10 years ago, so-called approaches to learning research. And, and researchers identified two approaches to learning, which they call deep approaches and surface approaches. Surface approaches involved rote learning and, and just trying to remember stuff. Um, deep approaches involved trying to get to the meaning, and, and and to use logic and so on and so on. And and in those deep approaches were was were the these independent thinkers, you know. And and you you'll hear academics saying, oh, I'm not interested in spoon feeding my students, or students want to be spoon fed. Well, a lot of those ideas you can trace back to the privileging of this particular kind of thinking uh, a particular kind of thinker of or of enlightenment europe and of course th- that thinker wasn't emotional you you take emotion out of it you take feeling you take being out of it it's all about the head it's about cognition i think therefore i am now That dominates teaching and learning in higher education, pedagogy. What would happen if you deprivileged the idea of the autonomous rational thinker in favor of understandings of learning as communal? And there's a concept um, in, in, in Southern Africa, Ubuntu, and it means a person is a person through others. So so you only gain your personhood through others, through being one with others. Now, many of the students in our u- universities will will be deeply imbued in, in this concept of Ubuntu. Their very being will draw on Ubuntu. So, so the idea of you know excelling, being top of the class. And and I am me, and you know I've got seventy five percent. I've got a first. Uh-uh. You gain your personhood through others, and and um, in in the, the struggle against apartheid, um, you, you saw some of the Ubuntu com- thinking coming out in the uh, in the claim that it, we should pass one pass all. It, it was about the collective. Pass one, pass all. So so what would happen if, if you drew on that understanding of being and therefore of learning as communal? I'm not, I'm not claiming to know how to do that. But what if you deprivileged, decentered this autonomous rational thinker and you, you, you brought in the idea of being through others. And what would happen if if you acknowledge that knowing can be more than cognition? You know, we, we do have some work in the Global North about embodied knowing and so on. But what would happen if you brought that in? Could you, could you build learning theories based on that? I'm beginning to think Well, I do think that you you probably could. I don't know that I can do it or people like me can do it, but I think African scholars can do it. And then one more idea related to pedagogy relates to oracy and literacy. Um, This is something that interests me a lot. So um, the development of the printing press in Europe um, eventually led to understandings of meanings as being fixed in a written text, before um, you got the printing press, press and you got lots of printed texts, uh, most meanings were communicated orally, and typically they, they were communicated um, in poetry, and, and poetry um, has all sorts of devices which allows it, it to be remembered. You know, um, rhyme, mnemonic devices, and so on. So if if you go right back and look at, you know, the epic poems, the sagas of of the Norsemen and so on, you'll see that that meanings about society were communicated through poetry. Now, when you had oral poetry, you'd have a poet reciting, but the, the recitation would differ depending on the poet. But that didn't matter because... The same stories were narrated over and over again. And and so the, the meaning resulted from an interaction between the text recited by the poet and the people in the context. So the meaning was in the context, not in the text. Once you got the printing press and the widespread availability of printed text, the belief grew that the meaning was on the page I mean, modern linguists wouldn't accept that, but that that's the sort of common sense view. It's there, it's on the page and you extract it from the page. It, it also, the printing press it ultimately also led to the development of so-called essayist literacy. You know, you, you see that in the work of people like John Locke, Montaigne, and so on. A particular style of writing, and you could track right that right through to writing essays in the university today. Written forms, particular genres, ways of writing, and you're unlikely to pass unless you can write an essay. Um, And and the essayist literacy forms will inform the writing of theses, even in the sciences and so on. However, we've got lots of work. And I've cited Goff there. Um, He was actually my PhD supervisor many years ago. So um, Goff argues that creators of oral genres in South Africa compose original, highly complex works as they speak. Literally, in the act of speaking, they compose these original highly complex works. And he gives all sorts of examples, one of which is a particular genre called Releasing the Widow, which which is when the brother of a a man who's died releases his widow into the world at some point after the death. And he analyzes them to show that this is the case. So my question is in relation to pedagogy, can we decenter literacy in the university? and explore the use of oracy in teaching and learning. Literacy rules, but what would happen if we decentered it and explored the use of literacy? Can we shift from essayist text to other genres to allow for students to draw on literacy practices that they carry into the university? I know that many students write poetry and I have a geologist um, friend at Rhodes Univ- University who allows his students to use poetry about rocks. And, and he's teaching, I think it's geomorphology. Fascinating. What would happen if we allowed students to draw on an a literacy form, which they felt happy with, they felt confident with, And we decentered the literacy. So these are ideas, they're only ideas, because not only if, if we're thinking about decolonization, not only do we have to think about decolonizing the what of curriculum content, we also have to think about the how of pedagogy.
0: And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe, And join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between.